0: While taking truth into the arena of ideas You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast Brought to you by BellatorChristi.com Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo As we enter into the arena of ideas
1: Taking up the sword of Christian theology And the shield of Christian apologetics While taking the truth into the arena of ideas this is the Bellator Christie podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo and I'm joined by Brian Chilton, as we answer your most pressing, apologetic, and theological questions of the day. Welcome along, everyone. We're glad that you're uh, you're tuned in, and we've been praying for you during this time. Uh, i remind you all to uh, to put a question in if you have one uh, to bellatorchristie.com, and and uh, let's welcome Brian. Hello, Brian.
0: Hey, Curtis. How you doing, brother?
1: Doing good. Uh, so our past topic we had last week, uh, um, that was a pretty good podcast. Safeguarding continuationism. Um, I, I suggest to our, our listeners to go back, give it a listen again, and and really kind of take it in. So um, I know that we had uh, some a big event this last week uh, or this week. Um, we lost uh, we lost one of the giants of the faith, uh, person that that I followed. Um, just all the time, listen to everything. He was such a wonderful statement and statesman, and that was Ravi Zacharias.
0: Absolutely. Ravi is a, a great man of God, and I say he is because he's not dead. His spirit continues to live right. on with the Lord. And, and um, the, the thing that really resonates with me about Ravi is the way in which he brought out pastoral apologetics. Uh, uh-huh. He created critically engage the issues but he didn't forget about the emotional side uh, there as well so uh that's that's a he's just a powerful apologist and he will certainly be sorely missed in, in our time yeah
1: yeah he was a gift uh he was a gift from god for for all of us to uh to really take in the words that he spoke and uh, how he spoke them and uh there was such grace in his voice and his, in his actions that uh I was I, I was captivated the first time I ever heard him and now you know each time I hear him I still listen in to every single word.
0: Absolutely.
1: So uh I think we got a we got a new uh, we got a interview what we're gonna do today. You wanna go ahead and introduce him?
0: Yeah, so we have uh, we have a lot of Ph.D. guys on here Last week we had Chris Berg with us Today uh, we have uh, now Dr. Daniel Sloan He just recently uh, defended his dissertation So he has now earned his Ph.D. in Theology and Apologetics from Liberty University uh, I had the honor of uh, having classes with Daniel I think he is the first guy, if I'm not mistaken, in our program That I actually had classes with That uh, has now completed the program So that gives me hope Daniel I have to tell you Uh, So PhD in Theology and Apologetics From Liberty University Adjunct Professor at Liberty University Uh, He is also the Associate Pastor At Safe Harbor Community Church In Bedford, Virginia And the former Teaching Assistant To Dr. Ed Heinson. So this guy's credentials just keep going and going and going So uh, Daniel It is a joy and privilege to have you with us On the Bellator Christie Podcast
2: great to be with you
1: guys awesome hey uh, so we're going to start out with some questions here we're probably going to just go ahead and hit you hard right off the bat and see where everything is from here so um um i want to ask the question um uh, what is the main thesis of your dissertation uh concerning apologetics in isaiah
2: so when i uh when i sat down you know i went through the program at liberty and and through apologetics, my cognate was Old Testament, and uh, something that I noticed relatively quickly in reading books on apologetics and and uh, different articles and different things like that is people generally started with where did you know where did apologetics come from? They go to the New Testament. They oh, well, Jesus was an apologist. Paul was an apologist. You know, the the Gospels have these things. But very few people had a lot in the Old Testament and just, you know, kind of what did they do in that half, you know, three-fourths of the Bible is the Old Testament. So I started to look at Isaiah specifically, it's one of my favorite books, and and looked at, you know, what did Isaiah do in terms of defending God in his own day? And so I was able to uh, really pull out three areas that he... Specifically worked on in his view of creationism, uh, divine intervention, and then predictive prophecy, and so each of in my dissertation, each one of those is a chapter uh, throughout the, the process. So,
0: in your uh, in your appendix, you note the importance for holding to the unitary authorship of the Book of Isaiah. Th- this is something that uh, I I. I you know, I can't get into the that Isaiah was written by two or three authors, and and I and you in the dissertation in the appendix you talk about the unitary authorship of the book. What what have you discovered in your research that uh, strengthens or verifies the notion that Isaiah was indeed written by one prophet?
2: Well, you know, different. Uh, there's a different focus in in each of my chapters. You know, it when you look at something. Like creation, which was chapter 2 in my dissertation, look at, that really wasn't affected by authorship to a great extent. I mean, if, if Isaiah wrote it, or, you know, Deutero-Isaiah, or Trito isaiah or any of these other guys, you know, one one guy I looked at had 12 different Isaiahs writing the book. Uh, you know, that one really wasn't...
0: One guy effective. had 12 Isaiahs writing the book? 12 different people
2: that were piecing the book together, basically. Oh and uh you know creation wasn't really affected most of them will still you know do as they're talking about creation or whoever where it gets a little hairy is once you get to divine intervention you know most of the what i focused on in that section was on the historical what they call the historical interlude in isaiah which is isaiah 36 to 39 The story of the Assyrian invasion, and then Hezekiah's uh, healing and the Babylonian uh, emissaries that came, kind of right in the middle of the book, it kind of divides the book in half. Uh, And one of the things you notice with that is, you know, if you, people that didn't believe that Isaiah wrote the book would say, oh, this is just, this never really happened, this is mythology, this is just some kind of legend that they that this this is not really historical. You know, they would not deny that Sennacherib existed or that uh, he invaded Assyri- he invaded with the Assyrians or anything because we have too much evidence for that, but they would go to the extent of saying, Well, you know, Hezekiah probably just paid him off or or something like that. Or or Sennacherib just changed his mind. He didn't end up invading. Uh, or and they would say, you know, well the author really couldn't possibly have known this was going to happen; was true because he wasn't there anyway, and this wasn't a historical event. He was just it was kind of hearsay, if you will. So that that became an issue. Uh, and then the biggest one, though, is uh, when you get to predicted prophecy uh, in Isaiah forty to forty-eight specifically. Isaiah is going to make an apologetic argument that you can know that god that yahweh is the true god because he can predict the future he says that uh, several times throughout this entire that section and he also does kind of a bit of a negative apologetic if you will when he says uh the idols cannot predict the future they they are just created they don't know these uh the future and can't do this he kind of challenges them to make predictions as well uh and so when you get into authorship, if, if like the critics argue and say, well, you know, this was written after the fact, these are not real predictions that Isaiah is making, this is Deuter Isaiah writing, you know, 200 years later, or this is Trito Isaiah writing 300 years later, and these aren't legitimate predictions, then you really have a big problem with the argument that's presented in the book. Because if, you're, if your argument is, you know, you will know that I'm God because I can predict the future, but I really don't predict the future. I really am just kind of faking it. <laughs>
0: that you kind know? of diffuses the whole, the yeah, whole man, argument what, there.
2: What is the purpose of making that argument, and, and, and why would people in, you know, Deuteronomy Isaiah's day have bought that if they would have known, all well, this guy just wrote this like yesterday. Why would we believe that these are <laughs> predictions if all these kinds of things had already occurred? And so, uh, you really have a lot of I don't know what you want to call it, maybe a intellectual snobbery, or however you want to describe it. Where they kind of just go, oh, you know, those, those Jewish people, they just didn't know any better, and they just they thought that Isaiah really wrote all this, and, and, and we know so much better than them because we have all these uh, sophisticated analysis and this kind of stuff, and you go, man, that just, it doesn't really make sense with how the book is portraying itself. Uh, another big problem that you have with authorship is in uh, specifically in Isaiah chapter 13 uh, Isaiah is going to make a prediction of the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 13 1, the first verse says the oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw and it's a clearly a prediction of the judgment of Babylon and so uh, the critics will try to say, well, you know, this wasn't really Isaiah, this is somebody who just put his name on top of, onto the passage, and is trying to portray it as Isaiah. You just get, you run into some real problems with inerrancy and with, with all kinds of stuff when you start saying, oh, we can't really trust if the text clearly says this, uh,
0: that he's the author, so... I, I like what you yeah. say about the you know, intellectual snobbery that this. That I, I find that with with the New Testament as well with the Gospels that you know you hear individuals say, well, you know, John couldn't have wrote the book or or uh, you know Matthew couldn't have wrote written the book, you know, and so it seems as if there's like you say a little bit of snobbery where we think that we our culture our time is better than than the culture of the of the ancients. Yeah, the
2: other big challenge that you have as well is. Uh, I have a chart in my dissertation, I think uh, don't quote me on this, I think it's 19 times uh, that the New Testament, but I think it's specifically the Gospels, Acts, and Romans, they don't just quote a passage from the book of Isaiah, they will say, and, this was, and the prophet Isaiah said this, or the book of Isaiah said this, and they quote from that. And so then you have another big problem with, you know, did the New Testament authors just not know that Isaiah didn't write the book? And so, or didn't write, and 12 of those occurrences occur in the second and third half of the book that they would say Isaiah didn't write. So it creates all kinds of problems when you, when you, uh, when you break the book up, I think, that people don't really realize uh, the implications of when they do that, right? And I, I guess,
1: uh, Daniel, I was going to ask you in this: how would have how would have Jesus looked at this, and and beings that he used it to point to himself um, in the New Testament when he was reading it? Um, he was pointing to himself in that. How would have how would a, a Jewish believer at that time understood? the book of Isaiah, would they have seen it at that time or is, or did this, uh, separation of these others, you know, uh, that you're talking about these other authors, um, be, uh, show up, when did they show up?
2: There are, it, it, the, the view didn't really grit off the ground until the 1700s. There's, uh, two German guys that kind of start floating around the idea. Yeah, hey, maybe this second half of the book. Maybe Isaiah didn't really write this. You know, they—they the biggest problem is the Cyrus prediction. Isaiah specifically names Cyrus about 150 years in advance, uh, and so they go. Oh, there's no way he could have possibly known that Cyrus by name was coming. It must have been somebody else that wrote this, and so uh, that it's it didn't really catch on that well for about. 50 to 75 years. And then a guy named, by the name of Doom uh, takes it and uh, and kind of builds on it. He's the one that first created the idea of Trito-Isaiah uh, as well. And so this is all relatively recent since the Enlightenment, pretty much. Uh, there were two Jewish... Scholars, and uh, I think it was about twelve hundred that kind of mentioned. Oh, maybe this, Isaiah didn't write the second half of the book, but other, but they were not uh, well-known, notable scholars of any of any stretch, and and nobody really bought it back then either. And so these are, you know, in Jesus's day, no one would have questioned. As far as we can tell, no one questioned that Isaiah wrote the entire book, and they were the ones that were closest to. Uh, the time of isaiah Absolutely. When found the dead sea scrolls they have the whole that de- they have I, the book of isaiah is one of the only books that they found the entire manuscript and there's not a single you know if you would have thought oh there's a break in the text that starts on the next page maybe that would give some hints but when they found it it chapter 39 ends on the same line that chapter 40 begins there's no break it's it's there's no hint at all That this would have ever been imagined During the time of the apostles
0: See that is very telling to me Especially even with I mean all the arguments are very very good Very solid But historically looking back The fact that you don't see a break In the Asianic scroll In the Dead Sea Scrolls That is very telling Because you have individuals who, who understood Isaiah The entire book had been written by one person The scroll is found uh, with as you said, thirty-nine and and the following chapter on the on the same line. That, that's just com- to me very compelling. It would be hard to overcome, in my opinion, that weight of evidence. I, I think that's a one-two punch, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I think unfortunately the the view had gained such a hold in in liberal circles before, but by the time that they found that. They kind of just blew it off and said, "Well, yeah, but, well, you know, we <laughs> still think we're right and you guys are not." And uh, and they they've created some other arguments. You know, they don't. There's not a. It used to be a very strong break between one to thirty nine was Isaiah, forty to fifty five was Deuter Isaiah, and fifty six to sixty six was trito Isaiah. But now, if you read some of the the newer guys in the last thirty years—they've got stuff from Deuterocanonical Isaiah in the first half of the book. They've got stuff from trito Isaiah in the first half of the book. They've got it pieced all around the book. Trying—I think they're trying to get around that argument a little bit by saying, "Well, you know, there's stuff from all over the place."
0: So, <laughs> it's just moved the goalpost <laughs> a little bit further, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It's like yeah. it's like they're. Uh, they're they're just throwing the dart at the wall and then put the target around it yeah uh, uh yeah, i mean I, when you said when you said they were they were debating that um he wouldn't be able to there's no way he would have been able to predict the the future into the future yeah. of that well if he wasn't the one that wrote the book or if he was the one that wrote the book well no god the holy spirit's writing the book god god's writing the book and and <laughs> Isaiah's Isaiah's being a true prophet. Is isn't that what we're supposed to test is, is
2: see what fruit comes out of a prophet? Yeah, and, and even some of the there's even a few, you know, so called evangelicals that have bought into this and, and they the kind of academic gymnastics that they try to do to get around these kind of things. I mean, John Golden Gay, for example, will say, you know, well, Deuteronomy Isaiah wrote that that section, but he's not really saying calling God a liar because Isaiah in thirteen said that Babylon was going to fall. So, so when Deuteronomy says that God predicted the future, he kind of did in a mean, in a kind of roundabout way. So it seems okay. So they they try to do these kind of. Uh, workarounds but they're so complicated and so complex you go who in the world would have thought about this if you didn't have some type of agenda
1: behind it Yeah and I kind of think that uh, by hearing what you're saying um, and, and how and how we've been actually discussing um, some of the uh, in the past couple of podcasts about cessationism and continuationism and, and you and we talked last week um, with Chris Berg about um, you know even progressive Christianity. And I can see where that um, that mindset that you're talking about actually fits into that progressive Christianity side. So, uh, number three, I'm going to ask you, um, uh, how does Isaiah, Isaiah Isaiah's portrayal of Yahweh as the Creator serve as an apologetic?
2: Yeah, this one was a little interesting to me, because... When you think of creation, you usually go your go-to passages in the at least in the Old Testament are, you know, Genesis one to three, and then Psalms. But once I got into Isaiah, especially you know forty to fifty-six, you know what critics would say, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, we just call it the second half of the book really. Uh, Isaiah has creation theology all over the place. You know, there's a an article that somebody wrote and counted up all the different things and I don't know how, he didn't it was a short article he didn't tell exactly how he was calculating this but he was saying oh Isaiah has more creation theology than any book in the Old Testament and I'm like well that's interesting I never even thought of that kind of thing so uh, how it looks from an apologetic standpoint you know Isaiah is going to focus on God as the creator. For example, Isaiah 44, 24. He says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Uh, and then, in Isaiah 44, right before that, uh, you have this fascinating passage, uh, 44, 6 to 20, where Isaiah is basically making fun of idolatry you know very Uh satirical he he talks about this he kind of makes up this story where he's going you know hey this guy goes out in the woods he cuts down a tree half of it he uses for firewood the other half he makes an idol and he bows down and worships it and asks it to 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 save him and this kind of stuff and he's like how how you kind of get the idea of Isaiah saying what in the world is this guy doing this is just completely ridiculous And so you kind of have this back and forth of of Isaiah going, you know, God is the creator. Don't be buying into all this idolatry and all these things. And and we know from the Old Testament that Israel was constantly falling into paganism, falling into syncretism, doing all worshiping idols. And it's like Isaiah is trying to argue. And this just doesn't make sense, not only from a theological perspective, but just from a logical perspective like what what are you doing you're you're creating these things and then thinking that they are some type of deity or, or God or all this kind of stuff and and so you really have this this nice back and forth where he focuses on God is the creator and then also negatively showing Yahweh is so much greater and incomparable to these idols that just they're they're really just useless and you, really, you have this kind of, I think, and part of it is uh, most scholars will agree the second half of the book is, is focusing on the exilic audience and the future that Isaiah is kind of writing ahead of his day to prepare the nation for the exile. And I think it's kind of like he knows you guys are going to go to Babylon and it's going to be tough. They're going to try and force you to worship their God and to do these things and, and just don't buy that. These gods are nothing in compared to the true God. And so he's kind of preparing them in, the, for in advance to to deal with these types of things that they were going to run into when they got to Babylon. We see that in the book of, for example, in the book of Daniel, they put him through, they put Daniel and his friends through. You know the Babylon University, if you will, to mm-hmm. train them and and basically brainwash them to become followers of their gods, and and they're having to deal with these kinds of things. Uh, and so I think Isaiah is kind of looking ahead and already preparing them for this. Uh, specifically, looking at you know their gods are are nothing compared to our God. Even if, even though we have lost the battle, it doesn't mean that our God is weaker. Or, or not the Creator, or anything like this. So, a very strong emphasis in the second half of the book on, on creation.
0: Would you also say that the fact that, uh, would you say that Isaiah would say that the fact that God is sovereign would also play into the fact that, uh, I know some prophets use the example of Deuteronomy where, um, God promised that if you kept the covenant, that he would be, He would bless them, and if he didn't, he would bring curses on them. Does Isaiah do something similar in that regard, saying that because we sinned against God, he's bringing about the exile that's soon to come?
2: Yeah, you have that in Isaiah, specifically in Isaiah chapter 1, kind of right off the bat. You know, that's the passages where he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells them, you know, you're going... Uh, you're, you guys, just stop making sacrifices because you're not doing it for the right reasons. They're, you know, they're not working. Uh, Isaiah chapter five. You've got the song of the vineyard, where he God basically tells them, you know, hey, I, I did everything I could to prepare to set you guys up. I, I put you in a good land, I gave you a great kingdom, I did all this stuff, and then I turned around and you guys turned away from me and and ran away, and and you're going to kind of get what's coming because of that. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have that kind of piecing thought throughout the book, but then you also have instances where God will say, you know, hey, if, if you turn back and do what you're supposed to do, I will help and I will stop, and you see that really in the... In the story of Hezekiah, specifically, in the middle of the book, that that where God will say, you know, hey, I'm still here. If you're willing to meet me halfway, I will take care of the rest.
0: It, it's it's amazing because, you know, it, and, and moving on to our fourth question here in just a second, but it's amazing because a lot of times people will view Yahweh in the Old Testament as being this Mean vengeful God In fact you know Richard Dawkins He he shows his scrabble prowess As he gives all these different adjectives About how evil God is in the Old Testament And the God delusion But as you read through Isaiah And especially as you're explaining it It seems like God is a God of grace In the Old Testament Not this mean vengeful vindictive God That some people portray him to be If you
2: read read through Isaiah and, And a lot of the other prophets Are like this as well you, by the time you get done reading the, through the prophets, you're like, man, how how in the world did God put up with this as long as he did? Like, I would have <laughs> yep. been done with these people a long time ago. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he gave them time, chance after chance for hundreds of years. I mean, it. It's, we we don't even give uh, our roommates, you know. Hey, you you make it one chance, second chance, you're out of here, kind of thing. And, <laughs> And God's just like, hey, I give you about eighty-five chances, but I'll give you one more if you're willing. You know, He's just time and time again showing them grace, and they just, for some reason, they just didn't get it. And, and it's easy for us to say, well, why didn't they do that? But then when we look at our own lives, it's very easy to say, well,
0: how many times do we do the same kind of stuff? So, mm-hmm. and I think as we see, I mean, and this isn't to downplay because I know many people are are going through difficulties even with this covid-19 you know stuff and but you know at the same time you know it seems like there's a lot of panic going on in the world and and so i don't really think that we can be as you said accusatory towards you know individuals when we we do the very same things ourselves you know but yeah. uh, Our fourth question, how do the, actually this is probably my 45th question after all of that, but how do the portraits of Yahweh's interventions uh, serve as an apologetic defense for the faith?
2: This one was an interesting one because I had creation and I had predictive prophecy and I was like, I really need a third chapter to the dissertation. I I was trying to think, you know, I have, I'm like, two works but three really nails it in. And I was I was reading through the historic interlude, and, I'm, and I and I I stop and I'm like, did that verse really just say what I think it said? And I go back and read it again, and I'm like, yeah, the book really makes the apologetic argument for me. For example, in, in 36, 18 to twenty, uh, this guy shows up. He is a they call him the Rabshakeh in the in the book of Isaiah. He's kind of a Military political advisor to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Sennacherib's still conquering a different city, and so he sends this guy. He's kind of a uh, intimidating political trash talker, if you will, uh, and and threatens the city. He's trying to get them to surrender so that they can just kind of end the war, because they've got everything has been conquered except for Jerusalem at this point. And and the and the and this Rabshake says, you know, don't, don't uh, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us, has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria. So he sets up this kind of uh, apologetic test, if you will, where he says, "Hey, why should your God be any different than all the other gods of the world?" We've conquered everybody else. Why do you think your God can deliver you when we've taken everybody else out? And then Hezekiah kind of builds on that in 3720 when he makes this great prayer to God and says, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And so you kind of have this Apologetic test, if you will, that that both to Rabshakeh and Hezekiah set up in the in the text itself, saying, "God, if you're really the God, if you're if you're greater than all these other gods, you need to prove it. You need to kind of come through in this." and And the important argument in this is, is not just that they're you know making this argument. In 30, chapter 38, that, are, that chronologically comes before chapters 36 and 37, uh, God had already promised to Hezekiah that He would deliver the city. So Hezekiah is kind of saying, "Hey God, if you're really God and you you promise that you could do this, you kind of need to come through, or this is, not, or you're not really God." And then when he sends then God goes, all right, I'll take care of this. And he sends the death angel, and the angel comes and wipes out Sennacherib's entire army. And Sennacherib has to go back to Nineveh with his tail between his legs, essentially. And, and, uh, and so that the entire section really is focusing on this idea that, that Yahweh is unique among all these other gods. Of the nations that had, that they couldn't stop the Assyrians, Assyria was the most dominant power during their day. When they got to the the city gates of Jerusalem, God took them out, and the Jews didn't even have to fire a shot uh, in the combat. He he sent the angel in before the battle even started and took care of them for him. So, <laughs> yeah. So,
1: uh, what can we make of the predictive prophecies in Isaiah? And what does this tell us about Yahweh?
2: Yeah, this one's. Uh, it, this one was definitely the biggest uh, part. My my chapter two in my dissertation, the creation one, was about forty pages. Chapter three was about fifty pages, and chapter four, this one, was a hundred pages. So, wow. There's so many predictive prophecies in the Book of Isaiah. I I really had to break them up into four sections. Uh-huh. I had immediate prophecies that were fulfilled in his lifetime for example when he would uh tell them that the syrians would come and then they would defeat them you know those ones we kind of as modern readers a lot of times we kind of just blow over those when we're reading and we go oh yeah yeah, we don't need to do that where's the messianic prophecies where's the eschatological prophecies where's the good stuff Mm -hmm. but to But to his audience in his day, those were the important prophecies because they had to decide, can we really trust this guy? Is this guy really a prophet? He's he's making a lot of claims, but how do we know we can trust him? And once he makes some of these predictions in his own life and they all come to pass, then he becomes a prophet that they can be trusted, and then we see that he becomes really the most uh, that sometimes he's called the Prince of the Prophets. He's, he's kind of viewed as the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and so, you have all kinds of predictions. You have uh, predictions about different nations being destroyed. You have predictions about the Babylonian exile and their return with Cyrus. You have you know, tons of messianic predictions, uh, and then you even have eschatological predictions. Isaiah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that sees something like the lake of fire. The last verse in Isaiah talks about uh, a place where the dead will be burnt and the worm will not die. It sounds very much like the lake of fire from the New Testament. He's the only one that kind of sees down that far he's the only one that really talks about the new heavens and the new earth in 65 so he has this ability to predict things that you know haven't happened in 2700 years and, and may not happen for a long a lot longer
0: i so. think jesus quoted from that verse two in mark nine forty-eight, if i'm not mistaken in his depiction of, of hail we're talking about where the worm shall not die. Um,
2: yeah, and and you have all kinds of... And if you look at the, especially the book of Matthew, Matthew constantly is using Isaiah in, in kind of a, a fulfillment, uh, pre- prediction fulfillment uh, kind of thing. You know, he says that Jesus will be born of a virgin, and Isaiah 7, 14, he talks about all kinds of stuff, and he's always tying it back to Isaiah uh, time and time again, and so he's really focusing on that, and it makes sense if Isaiah's the kind of the big book that they would have had, that they would have had a listing of kind of predictions or, or important passages, you know, they didn't have A Bible on their phone that they could just walk around and read all the time. They would have had to have stuff memorized and and easily read uh, In their mind to kind of go back to very quickly and so Matthew's just I think when he sat down to write his gospel He's like let me look back at Isaiah And He's just kind of back and forth and back and forth and time and time again He's like man the book of Isaiah is really influential in the life of Christ Just all over the place uh, the biggest one probably is Isaiah 52 and 53 you have the suffering servant passage that uh, that one is what's up there's some in my dissertation how I did it is I tried to be as not open-minded but perhaps inclusive as possible so for example if there was two or three views on specific passages if multiple views could work for and still make the argument i would use them for example isaiah 714 if you're familiar with the virgin birth passage yeah. right. there's some that say well that's only about jesus I, that's isaiah predicting jesus 700 years in advance there's other people that are saying oh no that's dual fulfill-. they call it the dual fulfillment view view it was about somebody in Isaiah's time and about Jesus. And for the purposes of my argument, I was like, I believe one, but both arguments really would work apologetically to prove that he could predict the future. So I would do things like that, but Isaiah 53, you can't really do that because the other view is not predictive. It's the other... There's, there's two other views that critics will say well this is about Deuter or isaiah writing about himself or his his disciples writing about him saying like oh he was this great prophet nobody listened to him and they beat him up and maybe he died maybe he didn't and, and then jewish people generally will say well this is about the nation of israel and how we've suffered so great and and so if you hold those two positions it, it loses the prophetic nature of it uh so it had to stand a little stronger on that and plus it it makes it a little easier because acts 8 phillips uses isaiah 53 directly in the text even quotes it says this is all about jesus and the guy in the ethiopian eunuch believes and gets saved and bad guys off of it so you definitely have a strong emphasis uh, in the New Testament that Isaiah 53 has got to be about Jesus. It's all over the place in several different sections, specifically in Acts 8.
0: It seems like I remember in one of Dr. Price's classes where he was talking about that, uh, generally speaking, that it was held that you know Isaiah 53 was a messianic view up until the time of Rabbi Rashi, if I'm not mistaken, and it somewhere in the medieval ages, and then it kind of turned then. But it seemed like it was the disparity between Christianity and Judaism that really began to make people view the suffering servant in the light of Israel more so than... than yeah, I, uh, I,
2: I actually went to a conference in December down in Dallas, and I sat through a presentation by uh, Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum,
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I remember reading and, some of uh, his works.
2: He went the, the it was the Messianic conference where they would the, the whole conference was just giving Messianic prophecies and defenses of them. And he had Isaiah 52 and 53 and he the whole his entire presentation was just him reading all these Jewish scholars from before 1000 AD that believed this was a messianic prophecy. Now you wouldn't say it was about Jesus, but they would say this is a messianic prophecy. This is about the Messiah, and I, I think he listed like almost thirty guys that he had accumulated wow. that had said this. So this, you know, sometimes the Jews will—if you say, "Oh well, there was Jewish people who believed this," they'll say, "Oh yeah, maybe there was one or two who did, but that wasn't from the predominant view." Well, now as we've dug up more stuff and found more stuff, and and read through more stuff we're, we're seeing this was if it wasn't the view it was certainly one of the major views there's enough people who believed it that this. there's no way you can write this off as just oh yeah a couple Jews thought this was the Messiah but we really know better it was now there was a lot of rabbis who believed this throughout uh, even after the time of Jesus for the next almost the next thousand years basically
0: and just just if anybody wants to read a good book that shows a lot of the rabbinic quotations from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He wrote a book called Yeshua, The Life of Messiah from a Messianic Jewish Perspective. I highly recommend that book. That that to me was a revolutionary book, in my opinion. And one I greatly appreciate Dr. Price having us read. I think it's like a four or five volume series. You can get actually in one volume now he in the one volume doesn't have necessarily as many of the quotations as the single volumes do but man alive that is a powerful powerful book
2: yeah and and luckily for me right as I was writing that chapter the the new moody handbook on messianic prophecy got was, oh, yeah. uh, published and uh, because dr. Heinsen and dr. price were both on my board my dissertation, and both wrote chapters on it. I got my
0: hands on an early copy of that, and was able to use that quite uh, quite often. So, yeah, I have a copy on on my uh, bookshelf. However, we're getting ready to move uh, houses. We're building a house, so we're getting ready to move. So, it's in one of the boxes right now. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, Daniel, I have a quick question on that. You know, you said you were talking about dual fulfillment. Ones that you, you know, they were, they thought were dual fulfillment. Where did, where did uh, Isaiah 11 fit in with that? Is that, is that still considered a dual fulfillment?
2: Basically, Isaiah 11 is, I think pretty much everyone agrees that one is, at least everyone within evangelicalism would say that that is a messianic prophecy. Now, when that is fulfilled is a little different. You know the second half of that, you've got what I would argue is you know messianic kingdom language, but there's other people who would say you know oh, that's that will be that was fulfilled in the first coming or in the church age or you know, wherever. But almost everyone agrees that for, you know that is a messianic passage. Uh, you know, the Spirit of the Lord comes; will come on the Messiah, and, and do all these things. Now, the critics will argue that that was written about Hezekiah. That's their kind of go-to for all the all the mess- messianic pictures in seven, nine, and eleven. Critical scholars will say none of those were messianic. All those were uh, pre- I, not. I don't even know if you want to call them predictions, but they were. Isaiah thought that Hezekiah was going to be this king that fulfilled all these things, and then he kind of never did. And so it was kind of misplaced hope, if you will, mm. in how they would hold those, you know, the, the divine child prediction and nine, they'll say, well no, that was just uh, a fourfold way that kings were introduced in the ancient world, and that was how Hezekiah was introduced was with this fourfold title. And all these kind of things, it's, it's really an argument from silence. You know, Hezekiah has never referred to that in any way, in anything that we've ever found. But if you're a critical scholar, you don't believe in predictive prophecy, you have to find somebody that's going to fulfill these predictions. And so you either have to, and you know, how they get around Cyrus is they just say, well, it was written after the fact. But we have copies of Isaiah that were written that were way well before Jesus, so they have to find a different solution to who's going to fulfill this, and their go-to guy is is Hezekiah for that for that entire section, really.
0: Isn't there? I'm thinking in Ezra or maybe I'm it. Maybe it's a different book. I seem like I recall that Cyrus was presented with a copy, maybe of Jeremiah or Isaiah one and was shown that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy, and was actually that was actually one of the things that led him to release the Jews that's, back to Israel? That's
2: in, Josephus talks about that. Uh, that's actually where that passage is found. So it's not... Some people, you know, critical scholars are going to say, oh yeah, that was just some Jewish legend that somebody said, that created, and that wasn't the case. We, I think there's some pretty decent evidence that, that that may have been the case, especially when you have Daniel right there as one of the rulers in the kingdom, right next to him. It's not like there wasn't any Jewish people around him. He had Daniel as a ends up being a, a strong leader. Later, you have you know uh, Nehemiah is right in access to the king. So you had Jewish people who were, had access to the kings throughout that time. So it, it, it could very well be plausible that he had that, uh, that account. But yeah, outside of, I think outside of Josephus, we don't really have another, we don't have a Persian example of that, that would be able to lock it in uh, perfectly. But yes.
0: Awesome. Uh, I, I guess I'll go ahead and steal Curtis's question here. How, how are some ways that the modern apologist can use Isaiah for one's own evangelistic efforts?
2: Yeah, so this one was very interesting because I got done with the, the four chapters of the dissertation. And I, when I got to the conclusion, I realized I've said a lot about apologetics kind of through you know scriptural study, but I hadn't really thought about how was he using this. You know, what were some of the ways that we're doing this? So I broke it down. I had I had five points that I did this. So the first one I, I said this was a big help in New Testament credibility. You know, I kinda hit on this before that uh, if Isaiah doesn't, he didn't actually write the book of Isaiah, the whole book, you have a problem in New Testament credibility because you have all these New Testament authors that are citing him as if he's the one that wrote the book. I haven't really. You know, I'm not a. I'm not a big New Testament guy, which is you know I got enough to read in the Old Testament already, but <laughs> I haven't really looked to see if. People are have, people have made that argument against the gospel writers. Maybe I, I never thought of it until I tell them. And then they will, but uh, unfortunately. But uh, so I thought that was interesting. I also had you know just how he used creation. You know, a lot of times what happens with creation is people will go to Genesis one to three and say, "Well, you know." that's a weird passage that maybe that's mythological you know we're not really quite sure to do what to do with that and so they'll try to write off creation by kind of making it seem like well the only place that creation is talked about is genesis and we can't we don't really know what to do with that and i and i i present that you know Isaiah has a lot to say about God as the creator, and he even makes the argument that if God wa- isn't the creator, then he's not really God. So you got a uh-huh. big itch issue there apologetically if you go, well, maybe God didn't really create. Maybe I believe in you know some type of science thing where it's so- God is just kind of there, but he's not really involved, or, or however you want to describe it. You know, Isaiah doesn't have any place for that in his apologetic argument it's you know god created everything or he's not god Yeah, mm, uh-huh. really saw kind of three tactics if you will of how you know isaiah or god they kind of overlap on depending on who's speaking in the text i kind of used apologetics the first thing i looked at was kind of how did isaiah deal with a pluralistic society now he's living in a time where everyone believes in multiple gods outside of Israel, and even most of Israel, it seemed like, was believing in a plurality of gods, you know, everything goes, and what you see throughout the book is, Isaiah wasn't scared to just go at people and challenge them on their ideas. Sometimes people go, well, is it really okay apologetically for me to, to you know, challenge the other side and. And make them defend their argument? And, and, or, or should I just be kind of nice and just put my arguments and put... No, no. Isaiah makes it clear, you know, this is a serious matter of, of conflicting worldviews. You better challenge the other side and make them put up arguments. You
0: know? Absolutely.
2: God, God doesn't just say, you will know that I am God because I can predict the future. He says... And you'll know the other gods are not gods because they can't predict the future. He takes it that other step and kind of flips the burden of proof back onto to the other gods. Uh, he does that in creation. He does that in divine invention. He does that in predictive prophecy all throughout the book. You, you know, Daniel,
0: one, 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 one thing, not, not trying to interrupt, but one thing I see, I see in modern apologetics where this is very beneficial is it seems like a lot of times atheists will fire... Uh, not just atheists, but you know, unbelievers of of all ilk's will fire off questions at us, uh, at believers, expecting to them to answer. But it seems like, if I'm understanding correctly, that it's perfectly okay for us to be asking questions, so that they ha- they're forced to defend their worldview. Yeah,
2: and and I think that's you know, uh, a book I just read, I, I kind of reread. I read it a while back, but there's a new edition that came out. Uh, Greg Kokel's book, Tactics. Mm -hmm. That's one of his main arguments is flipping the burden of proof and making them defend their article, their their, uh, arguments. And as I'm reading through Isaiah, I'm thinking that's what I, you know, he didn't just create that. Isaiah created that 2700 years ago. He's constantly (laughs) doing that to his own uh, in his own context, saying, you know, hey, look, if you guys are going to claim to be God, like the Babylonian gods were and the Assyrian gods were and you know, whoever else then you need to back it up you need to show some evidence that you are God because guess what i've got plenty of evidence to prove that I'm god and if you, so and uh and that's also kind of a bit i don't know if you want to call it humbling or however you want to describe it is you got all these times in the book where yahweh says you'll know hey you've put put forth your case and if you can do this we'll know that you're a god well got to be pretty confident that you know that you're the only god if you're telling people that to do that because uh you're basically saying hey if you can do this i'll your god as well but yahweh clearly knows these aren't real gods they're idols they're pagan they're, they're just these little statues they're false gods they're they they can not do the same types of things that he can do and so he constantly uses that Mm. Uh, throughout the text, and just really challenges people. You know, Isaiah wasn't somebody who kind of hid in the corner and and just hoped that people uh, understood what the arguments were. He also, said, you know, he went straight at people. He also varied his apologetic arguments. You know, I have, I pulled out three different, they, they kind of work together very well, especially the intervention and the predictive prophecy and really the create creator he wasn't the creator he probably couldn't do this second or the third one as well but they're all independent arguments that he uses to kind of hit at different sides of the argument Hmm. and so you know sometimes people will say well i'm gonna just hammer in on one argument and get really really good at that argument and that's going to be my argument and it's like well then you know that's good but what if the person you're talking to doesn't care about that particular field?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, what if you got a really
2: good historical argument, but the person's like, I don't really care about history. I'm more of an arts and, you know, uh. something kind of guy. And so Isaiah kind of models, you know, you've got different arguments that are per- presented that not only hit various audiences, but also work. Out there to build a more consistent and comprehensive argument for Yahweh's uh, incomparability all throughout the book. Wow! Well.
0: well, I tell you what—you've awesome. whetted my appetite once again for Isaiah, man. Are you, are you going to be turning this into a book, hopefully soon?
2: Yes, I. Uh, I have to make a few tweaks here. That's probably what I'm going to do this summer. Is kind of go back and and kind of beef up a little more on the apologetics side. You know, I'm, I have a degree, in apologet- a PhD in apologetics, but I've always been more of an Old Testament guy, so the way it originally re- read was a very Old Testament document with a little bit of apologetics sprinkled in here and there. And so I've kind of started to go through the process and say, let me incorporate some more apologetics as I go through the documents that of have only thrown it all in at the end. Mm. Uh, so I'm kinda doing that. So hopefully after this summer and gotta iron that out that I'll be uh, sending it along to try and get it published through some various channels, if you will. So is that gonna
1: be a um, like a academic book or are you gonna try to get that for the general public?
2: Ideally I'd love to do I'd love to do both. You know, I can if I, dis, if I could get my dissertation published right in its current format, it's more of an academic read. But I'd really love to turn this as well into more of a... You know, right now, it's, I don't even know how many pages it would be. It depends on how big the type is and everything. A couple hundred pages. I'd love to turn it into about a 150 to 200-page book where it's very practical, very uh, uh, you know, uh, user-friendly to wear it. Because I think a lot of times people read... You know, I don't really want to read the Old Testament. It's boring and old and dry. And you, read the, you read some of this, and you go, "Man, you got people trash talking God, and God trash talking <laughs> back, and God wiping people out for their trash talking, and, and all this kind of." It is a fascinating study, and it, and I hope that if people realize there's a lot there, that they'll go, "You know, maybe we shouldn't skip the first seventy five percent of the Bible and just jump to the." The New Testament. There's a lot of really important and good stuff in the Old Testament as well, uh, and hopefully it will open up a uh, more of a broader study into the the way that the Old Testament used apologetics. You know, we didn't. I, I, when I did my literary review, I found very little in that area. There's a couple books that mention it, have a couple paragraphs on it, but not a lot of really thing. so my my next two books after this will be daniel's use of apologetics and exodus's use of apologetics i think those two would be the next two that i would like to to build on but we got to get this one done first before we can move on so
0: awesome
1: awesome yeah well daniel we're we're looking forward to that and uh i'm sure there's uh quite a few people now listening to this that are um you know, taking a second look at uh gonna take a second look at Isaiah and, and actually dig into some of the um not so popular sections of Isaiah. Uh-huh. So so uh well we wanna thank you. Thank you for spending your time here with us, uh Daniel, and uh uh we'll be looking forward to that. So uh,
2: yeah, thank you thank you guys. You're my first uh interview, so you guys will <laughs> go down history. <laughs> If I become famous or if I don't become famous, you know, at least we got it on a podcast. So.
0: Well, remember us little folks whenever you make it big. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah. So.
1: Well, thank you, and uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll probably have you back on again uh, for another interview later on uh, throughout some time.
0: Absolutely. Count yeah. this as an yeah, open invitation love. anytime.
2: Yeah, I would love to have that. Yeah. Uh, so any, anytime you guys have any questions or anything in the Old Testament area, that's kind of my bread and butter, so uh, feel free to let me know. So.
1: We sure will. Cool. Well, we at uh, Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion. And it's a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast, and until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends.
0: You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Welcome to the Bellator Moment. This is a portion of the podcast where we briefly discuss a newsworthy item and give a response from a biblical perspective. This past week, we lost a giant in the field of apologetics. Ravi Zacharias died after suffering from spinal cancer. He had traveled the world over preaching the gospel to countless individuals. We have recently lost several giants in the Christian faith. R.C. Sproul, Norman Geisler, and now Ravi Zacharias have gone to be with the Lord in eternity. The Bible tells us that each one of us is appointed to die once. We must ask ourselves: Are we truly ready to meet the Lord when our time comes? Ravi has personally inspired me in numerous ways. One of the most important ways in which he has inspired me is his use of a pastoral apologetics. Ravi Zacharias did not shy away from intellectual situations in his messages. However, he did not ignore the emotional side of the faith as well. Bringing together intellectualism and emotionalism showed forth the heart that Ravi Zacharias had for those to whom he speaks. Now, let's go to Curtis Evelo as he gives us a few ways that Ravi Zacharias has inspired him.
1: Uh, Ravi gave me, um, many times, he gave me inspirational thoughts of of being able to, um, how to how to deal um, critically with uh, with with subjects um, and and four of the main subjects that I think touch apologetics in in all ways um, and I think he Ravi put a put his thumb on this in such a great way um, it, it, the four things that he put his thumb on were origin meaning, morality and destiny and those four things, each worldview that you come against in apologetics has to be able to define that, define each one of them. And only one, that's Christianity, fills all four of those perfectly. Some may fill uh, some portions of those, of those uh, four points, um, but not all of them. And, and, and Ravi had such a tremendous way and a tremendous heart of being able to describe and show... The, the the places where those other worldviews fell apart, but Christianity came to the surface and bubbled up to the top.
0: For Curtis Eveloe, this is Brian Chilton. We thank you for listening to the Bellator Moment on the Bellator Christie podcast. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? are you a christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary if any of these situations describes you then consider purchasing a copy of the layman's manual on christian apologetics This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christy Podcast.